This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening and welcome to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the Executive Director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. And it is my great pleasure this evening to introduce our speaker, Dr. Jeffrey Bowman. Jeff is a microbial ecologist and who joined Scripps Institution of Oceanography in 2017. He received his PhD in 2014 from the University of Washington as one of the first students to take part in a joint degree program between astrobiology and oceanography. Following his PhD, he conducted postdoctoral research at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia. Prior to entering academia, Jeff served as an Army Airborne Ranger from 1999 to 2003, so a really interesting background. Jeff and his lab group studied the diversity of marine microbial communities, the bacteria and the single-celled phytoplankton, or phytoplankton that exist um, out in the ocean. His lab conducts field work, laboratory studies, and modeling studies. He's particularly interested in how Europa and other icy moons in our solar system might be viable microbial habitats and how we might use different marine environments on Earth to understand how life might exist on Europa. Among Jeff's more recent interests are the complex microbial systems that characterize the polar environments in the Arctic, which will be the topic of this evening's talk. Please join me in welcoming Jeff for his talk, Modern Oceanography and the Changing Arctic Ocean. Uh, thank you, and thank you for the opportunity to come and, and talk a little bit about some of our work this evening. Uh, so this is a picture up here of one of the uh, key tools of uh, oceanography. Uh, this is actually a picture from the first year uh, that I was in the PhD program at the University of Washington. That's me in uh, yellow here. Uh, this is Matthias White. He's a graduate student from uh, the Alfred Wagner Institute in Germany. And behind us here is the Swedish icebreaker Odin. And uh, vessels like this are really the cornerstone of oceanography. But to do modern oceanography, we need tools that go beyond just the ship. So this is an illustration that really brings across some of those key concepts of the modern oceanographic field campaigns. In addition to the ship, which provides us access to real high-resolution in-situ observations, we need remote sensing, such as are provided by satellites. We need autonomous instrumentation in the ocean to cover larger spatial areas than we're able to cover with the ship. We need aircraft to fly over and give us really highly resolved transects and observations. Um, and by bringing all of this together and considering the ocean as part of a coupled system involving the land, the sea, and the atmosphere, we can really advance our knowledge of how the ocean functions in the Earth system. So before I get into the science of today's talk, I want to take a quick moment to introduce my lab and some of the work that we do. Uh, we do work in a lot of different areas. Uh, the unifying thing here is going to be microbial ecology. Uh, Jesse Wilston, a postdoctoral scholar in my group, is studying microbial dynamics in the coastal system right out here on the Scripps Pier, and he's using new technology to understand how microbial communities change on scales of hours to days and what the ecological implications of those changes are. 
uh, postdoctoral scholar Abhishek Duda is understanding how um, microbial ecology functions within the aquifers of oil fields. These are fascinating systems that are controlled by really strong external perturbations. Uh, graduate student Natalia Arazo is studying uh, biogeochemical cycling within mangrove-dominated estuaries within her home country of Ecuador. Uh, graduate student Tristy Dazarathi is studying uh, the microbial role in producing global biogenic aerosols. So many of the marine phytoplankton and bacteria in the ocean produce specialized compounds that end up in the atmosphere that interact with sunlight and produce aerosols and help form clouds. And she's studying how that process works. We have a couple of students studying high salt environments in our lab, including undergraduate Melissa Hopkins and incoming graduate student Benjamin Clempe. And uh, this picture here is showing a really key uh, microbial habitat right here in San Diego. This is the South Bay Salt Works, uh, located down at the south end of San Diego Bay. This is one of the oldest solar salt harvesting facilities in the country in an absolutely fascinating microbial environment. Very, very uh, chemically challenging conditions for life to live in. Very, very high salt environment. And of course, the motivation for doing that is that these types of really high salt environments give us insight into how life might function on extraterrestrial microbial habitats, such as Jupiter's moon Europa. We're also active in the Antarctic. Uh, incoming student, uh, graduate student Beth Connors is working in the Western Antarctic Peninsula and studying microbial processes there. And PhD student Amelia Chamberlain, who will be taking part in the upcoming Mosaic expedition, which I'll be talking about more later this evening, is studying microbial processes in the Arctic. So when I introduce the Arctic in lectures to my undergraduate students, I typically start by contrasting it with the Antarctic. And we try to bring out some of the broad differences between these two environments that lead to some of their unique ecology. When I ask students to identify differences between these environments, of course, the most obvious thing you get is that penguins belong in the Antarctic and polar bears belong in the Arctic. Uh, this is true. That is a very key ecological difference between these two environments. Um, there are some really fundamental differences, however, that drive the ecological differences. And this might seem really obvious, but at its most fundamental level, the Antarctic is a continent surrounded by oceans. And everything about the Antarctic continent is driven by these dynamic oceanographic processes that are happening around this island continent. The Arctic is uh, the complete inverse of this. It is an ocean that's surrounded by continents. So we have this almost entirely enclosed ocean basin surrounded by these fairly barren, fairly dry continental land masses. Now, there are some implications because of this. One is that the basin is entirely enclosed. There's very little exchange of water um, in through the Bering Strait and out through the Pham Strait and some of the other um, straits that lead out to the Atlantic Ocean. The communication between the Arctic and the other oceans on our planet is much reduced. We would consider this to be a very low energy system. Um, because it's entirely enclosed, kinetic energy is not transmitting into the Arctic the way that it is between the other ocean basins. You've also got that ice cap on the Arctic that's preventing a transfer momentum from the atmosphere down into the water. So the physical oceanographers would say that this is a quiet ocean. It has much less kinetic energy than the other oceans do. And then we've got these broad continental shells. Because there's land completely surrounding this ocean, there are these broad continental shells that extend in and, and take up much of the underlying area. Those broad continental shells provide a really good habitat for really rich ecosystems. So all of that really good Arctic uh, fauna that we're, that we're used to thinking about, uh, the seals and the polar bears and the whales, are dependent on having that broad continental shelf to support the 
organisms that they are in turn feeding upon. So this is a picture of me on my first ever trip to the Arctic, way back in 2009, my first year of graduate school. Um, this is up in uh, Uktivik, Alaska, um, formerly known as Barrow, Alaska. The name was recently changed. And I'm out here on the sea ice, and I'm studying these little tiny structures on the surface of the ice. And these little structures are called frost flowers. And I've got a video here of a frost flower growing in a tank in the laboratory. Um, and we can watch it form and evolve here. And basically what's happening is you can see that the surface of this um, artificial sea ice is relatively wet. It's wet, so some of that moisture is evaporating into the atmosphere. But of course, the atmosphere is very cold. It can't hold very much moisture. So that moisture is freezing back out and causing the growth of these really nice, beautiful dendritic crystals. Now, as the frost flowers are aging here, as this video progresses, um, we can see that they're starting to take on too much moisture and they're starting to sort of collapse into their own weight. Once those dendritic structures are formed, they start to wick up all of that salty moisture from the surface of the sea ice. And as they accumulate salt, they become too saline to support um, the frozen water, and they actually start to melt. Um, now, that's a beautiful process to watch in a video. And the reason we were interested in uh, studying this from uh, the perspective of microbial ecology is that salt is not the only thing that's brought up into those um, dendritic structures and concentrated there. Turns out that bacteria are concentrated within those structures as well. What you're looking at down here in this plot, uh, we have salinity down here on the x-axis. Um, this is going out towards much more saline conditions. To give you a point of reference, seawater has a salinity of about 35 parts per thousand. So anything to this direction is saltier than seawater. Um, we can see the different components of the ice surface here, which includes frost flowers, includes some of the brines that are at the ice surface, includes um, other components of the surface environment, are typically more saline than seawater. They also typically have far more bacteria concentrating in them. And as you get towards more saline structures, they tend to have more bacteria concentrated within them. Now, interestingly, frost flowers are becoming more prevalent in the Arctic. And they're becoming more prevalent in the Arctic because there's more open water area now than there was in the past for new sea ice to form. And these frost flowers are associated with the formation of new sea ice. So what you're looking at here in this video is the minimal sea ice extent at each year going back towards 1980. And it's just going to loop a few times here, and we can watch this progression happen. So back in 1980, if we looked here in the Western Arctic, uh, we would see that at the minimal sea ice extent, at the point of furthest melt back in the summer, the Western Arctic is still relatively covered by sea ice. As we move out towards the modern era, we start to see that change. And at the minimal sea ice extent each summer, most of the Western Arctic is open, uh, is open water. That means that this is area that will freeze um, in the coming fall, and frost flowers will form on that surface um, as we move into the winter. So this is what frost flowers look like in one of these new sea ice formation areas. Um, this is uh, from a, a picture that I took in the, in the high Arctic um, on what was called the Lomrog Expedition in 2009. This picture was taken in very early September. It was kind of the first cold snap um, when the sea ice uh, started to form again in the open leads that were around us. So this ice here is probably three to four inches thick. Um, and these frost flowers have grown uh, to this size in just a few hours um, once the temperature started to drop. 
In the background here, we can see some thicker sea ice that would have been sea ice that managed to persist through that minimal melt cycle and is now going to become what we call multi-year sea ice um, in the coming year. Now, these frost flowers are beautiful, but do they actually mean anything scientifically? Um, so we talked a little bit about how they're concentrating organic matter. Those uh, bacteria that are ending up at the sea ice surface are being concentrated within these structures. Once they're up in those structures, they interact with sunlight. And that sunlight actually oxidizes the organic material that's in those frost flowers and produces oxidized organic compounds. Formaldehyde is just one example of an oxidized uh, compound that you will find in frost flowers. Uh, this is the concentration of formaldehyde observed within various ice features um, in parts per billion by weight. And frost flowers have very high levels of formaldehyde compared to other components of the ice uh, system, and that's because of these oxidative, uh, sunlight-driven oxidative process, processes. Now, the interesting thing about this is that once these organic compounds have been oxidized, um, they become more volatile, they will end up in the atmosphere, and in the atmosphere, they further interact with the sunlight, and they interact with other chemicals that are already present in the atmosphere to form aerosol precursors as well as cloud condensation nuclei. Now, these are important because aerosols and cloud condensation nuclei actually have an impact in our global climate system. Uh, this is a basic uh, schematic that shows the, the basic outline of what we would call Earth's energy budget. Um, I know this figure looks a little bit complicated, but the things that you need to know about this figure are actually fairly simple. There's a certain amount of sunlight energy coming in, and there's a certain amount of energy that's being re-emitted by the Earth's surface. And the amount that leaves the top of Earth's atmosphere has to balance what's coming in, and if those two things are not in balance, balance then the overall energy state must be changing. In this case, it might be heating. So we are very nearly in balance in terms of the energy that's coming in and the energy that is leaving the Earth system. The amount of energy that is absorbed by Earth, the net amount is only 0.6 watts per meter squared. Uh, if you compare that to the 340.4 watts per meter squared that's coming in from the sun. So a very, very, very small amount of energy is left over, but it's enough to account for the significant warming that we are currently observing. Now, frost flowers do a couple of interesting things in this diagram. Um, one is that they impact the amount of light that is being reflected by Earth's surface. So a small but significant and important amount of energy is reflected right back to space off of Earth's surface. The lighter Earth's surface gets, the more light is reflected back and the more energy is lost through that pathway. Um, so frost flowers being very light, being much lighter than bare sea ice, um, reflect more energy back into space. In addition, I mentioned that these oxidized chemical compounds in the atmosphere will nucleate aerosols and will nucleate clouds. Those also have an impact on the amount of energy that is captured within the system. Depending on where clouds form in the atmosphere, they can actually be a contributor or a deterrent of warming, uh, but nonetheless, uh, they play an important role. Now, bacteria are not the only source of organic material within frost flowers. And a really important source of organic material in frost flowers is a compound, or rather a class of compounds, called exopolymers. Uh, now, you might be really familiar with one exopolymer already. Um, that's shown here. This is xanthan gum. Xanthan gum is an exopolymer, or EPS, that is produced by a certain bacterium, and it's widely used in industrial processes, including cooking. It gives certain foods their texture. This is a diagram of what xanthan gum looks like. It's a polysaccharide, so it, it contains different repeated sugar units. 
And some of the functional groups on this molecule interact very strongly with water. So when it becomes hydrated, it forms a sticky gel, and that's what gives food its texture when it's used in cooking. EPS turns out to be very common within sea ice, and it ends up, just like the bacteria, concentrated at the ice surface, and it can become concentrated within those frost lara structures where it will contribute to that oxidative chemical process. Now, to understand why EPS, these exopolymers, are common within sea ice, we need to know a little bit more about the microstructure of sea ice. And that's shown very well by these diagrams here. So sea ice, unlike freshwater ice, is not a solid. Uh, if you take an ice cube out of your freezer, it's completely solid. Um, it contains no spaces in it. It might contain bubbles in it, but it contains no liquid water spaces. Sea ice is completely different from that. When you take salt water and you start to freeze it, the freshwater crystals that form in there are, are fresh water, um, but they're excluding the salt to the remaining liquid portion. So as the temperature drops, those freshwater crystals get larger and larger, and the remaining liquid gets saltier and saltier and increasingly resistant to freezing. Um, and that is shown by these diagrams here. These are x-ray tomography images of sea ice that was grown in the laboratory. And we have different temperatures uh, being represented here. This is minus 3 degrees Celsius, relatively warm sea ice. The gold here indicates the liquid water fraction, and the open spaces indicate the solid fraction of this ice. So we can see at minus 3 degrees Celsius, the ice is in fact mostly liquid. It's just barely got enough solid structure to hold it together. As we move down in temperature, those solid spaces become larger, those ice crystals become larger, and again, that remaining liquid fraction is getting saltier and increasingly resistant to freezing. Um, if we drop the temperature still further, uh, we can see that um, idea extended even further, um, more solid space, um, smaller liquid space, and an even saltier liquid space. Now, out in the natural system, these small pore spaces within the ice are a really important habitat for algae and bacteria that are specialized to living in the interior of the sea ice. Uh, these are micrographs of uh, sea ice from the environment, um, and the temperature of collection is shown up here. Uh, we have minus 25 degrees Celsius and minus 15 degrees Celsius. Uh, we have a scale by bar down here indicating the size of the organisms that we're observing here. And these are a special type of single-celled eukaryote known as a diatom, and they've been trapped within the ice as it is forming. Um, but they're not just living passively within that ice. They're taking an active role in modifying the environment that they're living in, and they're doing that through the production of these EPS compounds. So, for example, uh, this diatom right here has completely filled this pore space um, with this EPS hydrated gel. And that hydrated gel is interacting with the ice and helping to prevent that ice from forming and helping to protect that organism against the high salt of its environment. Now we can observe the overall impact of having the biota in the ice on the microstructure of the ice itself. And some really nice work was done on this uh, by a group at the University of Washington back in 2011. And what you're looking at in these images is on the left side here, uh, these are, this is sea ice that was grown um, under sterile conditions in the absence of biology. And on the right side here is sea ice that's been grown um, with the addition of these EPS compounds that have been produced by sea ice algae. Um, and I want to draw your attention to this bottom panel. This is where the difference is most notable. This is the same magnification between these two images. And in the case of uh, no EPS, uh, we see these really nice, regular, elliptical uh, pore spaces within the ice. And when the EPS is present, 
the geometry of the, of the pore space is completely different. We get this very irregular, almost fractal um, geometry, excuse me, to the pore spaces here. It's a much more connected environment. It's a much better environment for life to exist within. And so here we've got the biology fundamentally altering the microstructure of the ice and changing it in really profound ways in order to make it more habitable to themselves. Now, uh, the sea ice algae are not limited to just the interior of the ice. Um, the sea ice algae are also form very dense mats on the exterior of the ice, and you can see that here. This is a, a quick video that we took um, only about a, a little more than a month ago uh, up in Uktivik, Alaska. And uh, you can see some sea ice, uh, some holes here in the sea ice where we've taken ice cores out to do some of our work. But what I want to draw your attention to is this greenish brown mat that's growing all over the underside of the ice. Um, and that, are those, those, that is that ice algae uh, forming this dense mat. Um, now, this is very, very early in the grow season. Um, the light has been on that ice for only uh, a couple of weeks. Um, so this is very, very early in the growth cycle, and already it's forming this really dense layer. At the end of the growth season, it can form these multi-foot-long strands, um, really tremendously dense growth on the underside of the ice. This accounts for a tremendous amount of biomass and a tremendous amount of what we would call primary production, or fixation of carbon dioxide underneath the ice. Now, to understand the implications of that, um, we can look at this food web here. Um, this is a typical classic schematic of, uh, of the Arctic food web. And at the base of this food web, um, we have the ice algae, and we also have phytoplankton uh, uh, living free within the water column. Now, these phytoplankton living free in the water column, these ice algae are responsible for all of the carbon that's coming into the system. They are supporting the growth of the very small zooplankton um, that are linking them to the larger consumers that are thereby, then by serving as a source of food for the much larger consumers. Um, the density of these alice algae on the underside of the ice is much, much higher than you would ever find for the phytoplankton growing in the water column. So when these uh, primary consumers are trying to feed most efficiently, they are relying on these ice algae. This is the most efficient place for them to acquire food. So we are interested in how sea ice algae and sea ice primary production might be changing in the changing Arctic. And some really nice work was done on this using model-based predictions by a group in Finland uh, very recently. And what they did was they used a, a model to estimate changes to sea ice algal distributions and growth patterns under different um, predicted uh, climate, future climate states. Um, and these are widely used climate states across a broad swath of um, studies. And the states here are, are given by the different lines. Basically what you have is a CO2 concentration in the atmosphere um, across time. And uh, the most, not most notably here is this RCP 8.5 climate scenario. This is commonly referred to as the business-as-usual climate scenario. This is where uh, CO2 is not adequately mitigated and uh, no change is made to current production rates. And we've got this steady increase in CO2 concentration across time. Now, under the RCP 8.5 climate scenario, these are the types of changes we would expect to see ice distributions looking out over the next uh, 80 years. The way to read these plots um, is this is latitude on the y-axis, and these are the months of the year on the x-axis here. Historical is looking um, back at past historical model runs, and RCP 8.5 is looking forward into the future. And we see this 
shift in terms of when the sea ice has frozen, uh, when the sea ice is broken up, the maximum thickness, and then the extent of seasonal sea ice. The take-home points here are that sea ice is becoming thinner and less widespread, and that trend is expected to continue. And sea ice is appearing later and disappearing earlier. So this, uh, the summer extent of seasonal sea ice is decreasing for most parts of the Arctic. So what does that actually mean for the growth of these critical ice algae? Uh, this plot here is showing the uh, changes, the expected change in the timing and extent of the summertime ice algal bloom in the Arctic. Uh, the way to read this plot is we have time change in bloom peaks, uh, days respect to historical. So as we're moving this way, we're getting earlier and earlier in the season. Latitude is here on the y-axis. So we're moving further north. And the size of the circle here is giving the expected change in the overall amount of primary production that's associated with these ice algae. So we see this pretty nice and expected trend in terms of a shift that the bloom is getting earlier and earlier and it's getting more and more early the further north we go. So the further north we go, the more extreme the change in terms of the timing of the sea ice extent. Uh, these uh, model estimates down here represent the marginal seas, um, such as the Baltic uh, and the Sea of Oshkosh uh, uh, near Japan. And we also see that the overall amount of sea ice primary production is massively incre increasing um, the further north we go. So the ice algal bloom is happening earlier, and it's getting much larger. So does this actually mean anything ecologically? And I would argue that it does for two reasons. And one is that zooplankton, such as the, the krill that are shown in this uh, photo, are tied to emerge from a state called diapause with the onset of the ice algal bloom. So zooplankton, such as copepods, such as krill, are not actively feeding in the surface ocean all throughout the, uh, the wintertime. There's virtually nothing up there for them to feed on. So they go down deep in the water column, and they go into a resting state known as diapause. And they emerge from diapause when their lipid reserves reach some critical threshold, and then they vertically migrate back up. And they expect to encounter that ice algal bloom um, when they emerge. If it happens earlier um, and they emerge too late, they're going to miss their opportunity to feed on that critical food source. Migratory animals are, in turn, dependent on this zooplankton boom, bloom to be happening and happening at a predictable point in time for their return to the Arctic. And if we look back at um, this schematic of the Arctic food web, a lot of the uh, animals that are depicted on here are not residents of the Arctic. Uh, they are transient species. So the humans, of course, are residents of the Arctic. Polar bears are residents of the Arctic. Lots of the seal species are residents of the Arctic. But many of the whales and the seabirds are not residents of the Arctic. They carry out um, large portions of their life cycle in other regions of, the, of the, the world ocean. They return to the Arctic for a brief period in the summertime to feed very rapidly on these very um, energy-rich uh, zooplankton that are feeding on the ice algae. And if the timing of that entire process has shifted, um, they will miss the occurrence of that zooplankton bloom, and they'll lose access to that critical food source. All right, so at this point, I want to pause and go over a couple of key points in the talk so far. One being that frost flowers are an example of transport processes in sea ice. They're a really nice way to understand how things are moving around and how things are, are happening within the ice. But they also exert an impact on the ice albedo. That's the surface reflectance of the ice and on aerosol formation. So through those oxidized compounds, they're helping to initiate aerosol formation in the atmosphere. 
Frost flowers, as a feature associated with young sea ice, are increasing in abundance. Sea ice is a major habitat for sea ice algae, which counts for much of the carbon that enters the Arctic marine food web. And the timing and the extent of the ice algal bloom is changing. Um, namely, it's becoming earlier, it's happening earlier, and it's larger in scale as sea ice conditions continue to change. And this has implications for zooplankton in the higher trophic levels, which expect the bloom to occur at a certain point in time. Now, I want to change gears now and talk a little bit about um, human interactions with the Arctic. Uh, so like it or not, the world is coming to the Arctic. That is inevitable. And uh, one way to see that is by looking at gross domestic product. Uh, this uh, plot is showing gross domestic product for several regions since 2002. Uh, the U.S. is a highly developed market, um, is increasing its GDP, but it's increasing at a relatively slow late rate compared to the global average. Um, when we see the Arctic as a relatively undeveloped market or underdeveloped market is increasing its, uh, its GDP um, very fast relative to the world average. Um, we're interested in how will this change Arctic environments and how will the Arctic environment in turn impact human society. So there's a feedback here as we interact more with the Arctic, as we change our activities in the Arctic, as we industrialize the Arctic, the Arctic will change faster, and that exerts a control back on the global climate system. So there's this interesting feedback to observe as we move forward in time. So one really obvious change that's very easy to point to, and I think is quite fascinating, is the development of Arctic transport corridors. Most notably, uh, this includes the Northern Sea Route, which links uh, European ports with Chinese ports. It's predicted that by 2030, up to 25% of container shipping between Asia and Europe will take place via the Northern Sea Route, uh, about 2,000 ship transits per year. This is a massive uh, shift in global commerce and a massive increase in uh, shipping traffic in the Arctic. We're already seeing, um, you know, every year is setting a new record for cargo volumes via the Northern Sea route, but the number of ship transits is still relatively small, uh, still limited to specialized ships being escorted by icebreakers, as, as shown in this image here. Uh, this plot at the bottom here is showing uh, uh, gross tonnage that's been transported through the Northern Sea route uh, since 1980, so we can see that it's relatively flat up until about 2014. Now we're starting to see this really rapid increase in shipping traffic as the sea ice forecasting improves, as the ship technology improves, and as the economic pressure uh, to find alternatives uh, to the, uh, uh, the southern route here, which transits some politically unstable regions, um, increases. All right. So we're interested in future Arctic change. And to understand systems and predict future change, scientists use models. And I've thrown the term model out there previously in this talk without really stopping to describe what I mean by that. Um, we can formally define a model as a system of postulates, data, and inferences that are presented as a mathematical description of an entity or state of affairs. An example would be a computer simulation. Climate models, for example, are a type of computer simulation based on these postulates, inferences, and mathematical descriptions. Um, that's a pretty dry uh, definition. So to break it down still further, um, basically scientists go out and make observations of a system. They attempt to describe that system mathematically. And then they use those equations to try to predict 
uh, future change by altering the parameters that govern those equations and seeing what happens to the system. So I'm going to describe in a little bit more detail two types of models. One is a general circulation model and one is an ecosystem model. So a general circulation model is what you use when you want to understand the physical processes that are taking place in the world. So to do that, you would identify all the physical processes that are influencing the flow of, for example, water and air, but also extending to heat and uh, different chemical constituents of these environments. Um, and you would need to do this for uh, the Earth's crust, for the ocean, and for the atmosphere. And you would try to understand all of the physical processes that govern the exchange of materials between these different domains. You represent all of these processes as mathematical equations. And then you solve these equations continually across time for each grid on the surface of the globe. So here, a, a grid uh, surface has been superimposed on the surface of the, of the globe. And you're solving these equations for each of these grid boxes. Of course, each box is interacting with its neighbor and exchanging material with its neighbor. And so the, uh, the computational complexity of this problem balloons up fairly quickly. But nonetheless, with modern computing, this becomes a very uh, tractable problem. And we can uh, do these types of exercises. Ecosystem models are a little bit different. In an ecosystem model, you identify all the biological processes that influence the flow of nutrients and energy within a system. So here, for example, we have the different components of the carbon system. We've got uh, different nutrients that are being exchanged between different compartments within the biosphere. And then we have the biosphere itself. We've got phytoplankton and bacteria and, and other uh, types of flora and fauna that need to be categorized within this model. And then we're trying to understand how the materials are exchanged between all of those boxes as the model is run forward in time. Now, if you put these two things together, if you take a um, circulation model and you superimpose an ecosystem model on top of it, you get something really profound and beautiful. And that's shown here in this, uh, in this animation. So this is a, a coupled Earth system model. This is where they've taken a, a general circulation model so that they can understand the flow over a certain period of time in, in Earth's past. And once they've solved that problem, once they've solved the flow regime, um, so that they've got all of these different little fluid characteristics that you see um, in such fine detail, then an a, a ecosystem model has been superimposed on it and allowed to run and exchange nutrients and exchange phytoplankton between all of the different uh, very, very fine scale boxes on the surface here. Now, to make this easy to interpret, only four different what we call functional groups of phytoplankton are represented uh, in this model output. And they are the diatoms. Um, and this is an example of diatoms for those of you that aren't familiar with them. These are very abundant, very important uh, marine phytoplankton that, that contain these um, uh, silified uh, shells. And they're shown in red. Prochlorococcus, which is a very, very small cyanobacterium, very, very ecologically important out in the marine environment, is shown in green. Other large cells, such as dinoflagellates, are shown in yellow. And other small cells, such as cyanococcus, another cyanobacterium, are shown in yellow. And as we, we watch this progress and we watch the, the Earth rotate here, you'll notice that the Arctic and the Antarctic are largely black. Um, and they're not largely black because nothing is happening there. We know from our previous discussion of uh, sea ice algae that there's lots of primary production happening here. There's lots going on, but they're black because there are no observations to inform the model. We can't use remote sensing. We can't use satellite observations to look below the sea ice to see what's going on. And there are hardly ever any ship-based expeditions that penetrate um, the Arctic or deep in the Antarctic 
um, to make manual observations. So these areas remain dark. Um, and this is where the Mosaic Expedition comes in. So the Mosaic Expedition is the multidisciplinary drifting observatory for the study of Arctic climate. Uh, this is an audacious effort to undertake an entire year of observations of key biological and physical processes from the central Arctic. And it really captures what I consider to be this idea of modern oceanography. We're not relying just on a ship to undertake our measurements here. We're treating the Arctic as part of a coupled system involving interactions between the ocean, sea ice, and the atmosphere. And there's a really tightly coordinated international effort that will bring together aircraft, multiple ships, satellite observations, and modeling to try to understand the role of the Arctic in the Earth system and how that whole coupling will change as we move into the future. So the basic idea behind Mosaic is to take this ship here. This is the German icebreaker Polar Stern. Uh, it's going to leave from Tromsø, Norway on September 20th. Uh, it's going to drive uh, deep into the Laptev Sea in the Siberian sector of the Arctic. And it's going to attempt to find a multi-year ice flow to tether itself to. Now, um, what you're seeing in the colors swirling around in the Arctic here is sea ice and the age of that sea ice. The first year sea ice is kind of the darkest gray. That's that seasonal sea ice. And if that sea ice doesn't melt all the way in the summertime, if it persists through the summer into another ice growth cycle, it becomes multi-year sea ice. Now, multi-year sea ice is stronger and thicker, and there's a lot less of it in the Arctic than there used to be. So the ship is going to drive deep into the Arctic. It's going to attempt to find a multi-year ice flow to tether itself to. And then it's going to shut down its engines and simply drift with that flow across the central Arctic for almost an entire year. Um, we can see that the general path of ice flow in the Arctic um, is in this uh, clockwise pattern here, uh, with the ice generally moving from the Laptev Sea out towards the Fram Strait here between uh, Svalbard and Greenland. And so the ship track should take it neatly out through here. Once it emerges from the pack ice, um, it, will, it will proceed back to Tromso and end the expedition. So this is a nice representation of what that drift track is expected uh, to look like. The colors indicate the month of the expedition here. So freezing in um, up here in the Laptev Sea, drifting past the uh, North Pole, and then very neatly out between Greenland and Svalbard. This is based on an average of uh, ice ice drift um, over the last couple of decades. But of course, if you look at any individual year, it's anyone's guess as to where the ship will actually go. And part of the, part of the fun of being involved in a project like this is, is absolutely not knowing where you're going to end up. Uh, so most of the drift tracks, some of the drift tracks do in fact um, emerge between uh, Greenland and Svalbard. Uh, a lot of them continue to just loop endlessly within the Arctic, and some wander way off uh, course out here. Uh, so we'll see where, where the ship actually manages to go. Um, so I mentioned before that this is a fairly audacious effort. This is, uh, I would say, unprecedented so far in um, Arctic exploration to date. This is going to be the largest effort really ever undertaken, certainly in the modern era, to understand uh, uh, the Arctic role in the global climate system. It's taken about eight years to get this expedition off the ground. Uh, we started having workshops for Mosaic way back in 2011 when I was in my second or third year of graduate school, and I started begging my way into these workshops, um, trying to figure out how to how to build a scientific career around this type of opportunity. Uh, the expedition will involve uh, five separate icebreakers. Um, so there's the primary icebreaker here, Polar Stern. That's the ship that's going to be frozen into the ice and, and will remain in the ice for that entire year. 
Um, but of course, other icebreakers are required to bring it fuel, to bring it exchanges of personnel and crew, to bring it food, to bring it uh, scientific resupplies. So there's four other icebreakers that are going to play a role in this. Uh, they include the uh, Swedish icebreaker Polar Stern, uh, sorry, not Polar Stern, the Swedish icebreaker Odin, the uh, Chinese icebreaker Snow Dragon, uh, and then two Russian icebreakers, the Makarov and the Fedorov. Um, and ultimately, there will be uh, 600 scientists uh, from 17 different nations um, involved in Mosaic in some capacity. Um, and that's directly involved, um, either shoreside or on board. Um, about half of those will actually be involved directly on board the ship at one point in time or another. And then, of course, the number of scientists that it touches just by having the data available and the findings available would be vastly um, larger than 600. So our, my group's role in Mosaic is to understand what we call the trophic status of the central Arctic Ocean. And what I mean by trophic status is the balance or the imbalance between the carbon entering or leaving an ecosystem. So if we look again to this schematic of the Arctic food web, um, we talked about our primary producers within this system, the ice, algae, and the phytoplankton. Uh, these are organisms that are taking up CO2 and fixing it to make organic carbon, and then other organisms are feeding on that organic carbon. They are respiring that organic carbon, and they're giving off CO2. The balance between the amount of CO2 that the ecosystem is taking up versus giving off is a really important parameter that we want to understand. It means, is this ecosystem a net source or net sink for CO2 in the atmosphere? Now, CO2 is actually really difficult to measure um, in seawater. Um, and so we use uh, proxies for CO2. And the proxy for CO2 that we use is oxygen. And we can do this, of course, because um, under uh, sunlight-driven aerobic photosynthesis, um, as carbon is being fixed, oxygen is being given off. And as we respire oxygen, uh, or sorry, as we respire carbon, we are consuming oxygen and giving off CO2. So we can track the oxygen in the system to understand uh, whether the carbon is being taken up or given off. So the basic thing to remember here is that when the ocean is a source of oxygen, it is a sink for organic carbon, and when the ocean is a sink for oxygen, it is a source of organic carbon. Now, this is work that we commonly do uh, right here in coastal California. One of our projects is to look at how trophic status changes um, across uh, day-to-night cycles and across seasonal cycles uh, right here on the Scripps Pier. Um, we do that by putting out a very specialized instrument called a membrane inlet mass spec, and it continually measures the concentration of oxygen and the concentration of an inert tracer argon in the water. And from the ratio of oxygen to argon, we can tease out the processes that are injecting oxygen into the water through, through physical driving, such as, um, such as waves breaking, versus um, the biological production of that oxygen. So what you're looking at here is, uh, is a week in September, and the cycle of um, oxygen either being given off in green here or taken up by this ecosystem. And very often, we follow this expected diurnal pattern. So during the daytime, when photosynthesis can happen, the ecosystem is giving off oxygen. And then at night, everything is respiring, and the ecosystem is consuming oxygen. Uh, here, we have some event. This is probably a storm event or something similar to it. And then after that, there was a shift in the community. And the new community that reestablished after that storm had a different trophic status. It was no longer giving off as much oxygen. It was consuming more oxygen. So we have this change in trophic status. This is an example of the types of changes that we want to identify across the entire seasonal cycle in the Arctic. Uh, this is a picture of the instrument that we'll be using to do that. Uh, this is a PhD student, Amelia Chamberlain. Um, and this is the 
uh, membrane inlet mass spec that was purpose-built by the Alfred Wagner Institute to carry out this work. Uh, this is a highly specialized instrument that we hope will work uh, for us for an entire year without um, any kind of a service call or any ability to service that instrument beyond what we can provide. And we are not instrument technicians, <laughs> so we were out the Alfred Wagner Institute for about a week to try to learn what we could in terms of fixing this instrument when it, when it goes down. And now we feel quite confident, but nonetheless, uh, the thought of taking it into the Arctic for an entire year is a little bit daunting. All right. Um, Beyond just making these observations, however, we really want to understand what aspects of the ecosystem are driving these changes in net trophic status. So in addition to doing those oxygen and argon measurements and making our calculation of what we call net community production or the amount of oxygen that's being taken up or taken in, um, we're going to be looking at things like the abundance of different phytoplankton and the taxonomy of different phytoplankton, the cell size, the cell shape, the grazing rate, the growth rate, the bacterial activity, all of these things are determining the trophic status here. And in order to model that trophic status and predict how it will change in the future, we need to understand these types of parameters so we can build a very robust model for predicting trophic status in the future. So I'm going to end um, again with this image here. Um, and this is the type of picture that we would like to be able to build for the Arctic um, after the Mosaic expedition. And here we're really focusing only on phytoplankton functional group, a very gross measure of taxonomy here. But embedded within this are lots of really important characteristics um, of the ecosystem that are driving things like net trophic status. And if we can understand how these processes are being carried out in the Arctic, we will have a much greater understanding of how the Arctic will change in the future and the Arctic's role in our current, current climate system. Um, with that, I'd like to acknowledge the uh, members of my lab um, who are doing uh, the, the, the vast majority of the, of the difficult work um, that I've described here. And, uh, of course, our sponsors, including uh, most certainly the National Science Foundation, who is uh, funding our participation in the Mosaic Expedition. Thank you very much, and I'd be happy to take questions. So with the phytoplankton and the algae blooms being the beginning sources here of the entire cycle, if the, if the algae bloom comes earlier than the phytoplankton's prepared to come alive, won't nature create a, a, an adjustment for the phytoplankton to come and then it will prevent it from completely collapsing the food chain? Absolutely. Um, the the concern is the time scale for that happening. So zooplankton are small organisms with relatively fast um, generation times uh, you know, on the scale of years. These are multi-year uh, life cycles, but they, they grow fast relative to, to vertebrates, uh, most vertebrates. Um, so one might expect that they will adjust relatively soon. Um, there's going to be a distribution in the timing of the emergence from diapause. So you know, pretty quick through a few generations, you might achieve the necessary adaptations um, to, to shift the zooplankton earlier. Um, the concern is really the um, slower growing organisms, the seabirds, uh, whales, that um, might be a little bit more uh, rig uh, rigid in terms of their timing and their ability to shift to dramatic change. And since these are very often highly stressed communities anyways, um, the concern is always that when you perturb it, um, they quite recover, um, or they won't recover at a pace that's amenable to maintaining the kind of uh, what we would call ecosystem services that we would expect. So 
If you are um, dependent on a fishing resource or you are a village that depends on, uh, on whaling, which is um, a major source of protein in the American Arctic, um, you know, will, will your traditional way of living survive uh, whatever period of adjustment is required for the ecosystem to, to reach its new normal? Um, and these are unknowns. Um, with the ice flowers you were talking about, they both contribute to like increased albedo and also the increase in aerosol. And it seems like those are both like opposing forces. Is there a balance there, or do you know if they're contributing more to one or the other? Yeah, absolutely. Those two things are opposing. Um, the aerosol questions get really, really uh, tricky, and I'm by no means an atmospheric chemist or atmospheric physicist, and I think that even those communities can't really determine when aerosols are contributing in what direction to the to the to the radiative budget. Um, I don't think that it's been worked out, which is more prevalent. Um, the albedo impacts are more obvious. Um, you can really easily measure the impact on albedo. Um, the connection to aerosols is much, much more difficult to observe and to model out the, the direct impacts. Um, so I'd say impacts on albedo are probably more certain, and um, impacts on aerosols are trying to be determined. The recent stranding beaching of 70-plus uh, gray whales, is that... Is the timing of all this algal bloom a suspect in that in a factor, possibly? Um, that's a very interesting question. I'm not aware that it is, um, but certainly um, changing ice conditions and things like this could be a factor in those types of, of scenarios. Um, I'm not that familiar. With, I had, had seen some mention of that occurrence, uh, but I'm not too familiar with the particulars of it. Um, I would say that the, um, the shifts in terms of when primary production is going to happen are really more looking out over the next couple of decades. Um, certainly, shifts are happening now. Um, the season that we just had up in uh, Uktivik, Alaska, was highly unusual in terms of things happening very, very early. But that stuck out more as an anomalous year than as a, than as a pattern as of yet. Which do you think is a bigger threat to the um, Arctic ecosystem in the short term and in the long term? The um, trophic changes you're, you've described or the increase in shipping traffic? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that the, there will be stronger short-term effects. This is just my guess, um, that there will be stronger short-term effects of the shipping traffic um, and that these trophic effects will take longer to, to progress. I mean, they are happening. Uh, people have observed that subarctic communities are moving northwards. This has been fairly well documented, particularly in the, the Bering Chukchi uh, region in the Western Arctic, but also in uh, the European Arctic as well. Um, but nonetheless, it takes a long time for ecosystem shifts to manifest. So I think we're looking at you know, decades to really observe um, huge shifts in those ecosystems, whereas the shipping traffic is, um, you know, seems to have the potential to, to happen very quickly. Um, one never knows. Um, if there's a further economic downturn, then that will reduce the rate of shipping and the, reduce the uh, GDP growth in the Arctic. So, you know, there's a lot of factors playing in there. But um, if we start transiting 2,000 ships through the, through the uh, Siberian Arctic, that's going to be a pretty dramatic change to, uh, to, uh, to that environment. I'm curious about the expedition itself, and you've got 600 scientists. I know some are land-based, but still 17 languages, you know, at least. <laughs> um, are you all time-sharing being on the ship, or is there a certain core that's going to stay the entire year, and others are coming in and out? I just, it seems like an interesting logistical thing. 
Yeah, the logistics get really, really complicated. Um, so fortunately, nobody that I'm aware of is spending the entire year on the ship. Uh, that would be quite, quite an undertaking. Um, there is quite an operation happening in terms of changing over both the science personnel and the, uh, the crew. So some scientists are staying on for two consecutive legs. So the, the cruise is broken into, excuse me, into six legs that are about two months in duration. Um, most of the crew, I think the crew turnovers are happening every other leg, so the crew stays on a little bit longer. The science party, most of the science party will change out at each leg, but there are some scientists on some legs, uh, my student Amelia Chamberlain being one of them, that will stay for an entire four-month uh, kind of double block. Um, the effort that's required to do those changeovers is, is quite phenomenal. So um, I will be going up on the... Uh, Russian icebreaker, the Makarov. Um, so it's about a three-week cruise just to get to the, the polar stern to start our two-month um, leg on the polar stern. But then we should be able to fly off. So this will be midwinter. So the ice, once the ice is, is consolidated, they'll, they'll build a runway. And then they should be able to fly us off with Russian aircraft. But then once the ice breaks up again, those other icebreakers are going to be required to, to bring um, personnel out. Of course, aircraft can't transport much fuel, so to refuel the polar stern, they have to bring that fuel up on those other icebreakers. So it becomes a pretty big operation. Very interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. Are the, mo are the processes that you're talking about included in the models which are used for climate that are reported by the IPCC now? And, and how important is the little Arctic part of the world in terms of climate? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, I'm not an overall expert on um, the types of models that are used by the IPCC, but uh, my understanding is that sea ice is you know, part of the system that is represented within those models. Um, how important it is, I think, is a really interesting question. I think a lot of people are investing a lot of effort and time into it. So I think it is a, it's small. The overall area of the Arctic Ocean is something like 5% of the, uh, the global ocean area. But nonetheless, I think it plays a fairly significant role. It's got this very distinctive albedo characteristic um, in terms of reflecting light back. Um, and I think it does play a pretty important role. We're also looking for fairly small shifts at this point in time. That overall um, amount of energy um, that's being absorbed by the Earth's system to account for the warming is really, really small. So it's these very small perturbations in the system that are going to change it one way or the other. So the Arctic being small but changing very rapidly can account for some significant fraction of that perturbation. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.